from beautiful downtown Sacramento, it's time for Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket This is Spaz, and thanks for listening to Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. Got a great show for you today. I am going to be interviewing Mr. Drew Arnott of Strange Advance, one of my favorite electronic synth bands of the 80s. They are a band from Canada, and they put out three fabulous albums between 1982 and 1988. And we will be talking about those albums, playing some music, and talking about the band's live return this year that is right after 30 years away strange advance will be hitting the stage between july and october in 2019 unfortunately it's only in canada but uh maybe you can save up enough money and go visit anyway sit back relax and enjoy this interview and i do appreciate you for stopping by beach blanket for it bingo In 1982, Canadian band Strange Advanced released their debut album, Worlds Away. With melodic hooks galore, their blend of synthesizers and guitars was closer to the edginess of mid-year-era Ultravox than the blip-blop-bloop sounds of the Human League. Led by songwriters Drew Arnott and Daryl Crom, and featuring bassist Paul Iverson, Strange Advance's Worlds Away went gold in their homeland while the U.S. wasn't paying attention. It took another three years and the departure of Iverson before the band returned with the album Two. This sophomore album also went gold in Canada while the states remained blissfully unaware of their awesomeness. After their third album, The Distance Between, in 1988, the band went into indefinite hibernation. However, Drew and Daryl remained friends throughout the decades and recently decided to take Strange Advance out of storage and return to the live stage after three decades. While both remain involved in the project, Daryl was unable to commit to live shows in 2019, but is totally supportive of Drew moving forward and hitting the road again. With live shows scheduled this summer and fall, Strange Advance is primed and ready to remind audiences that they are just as vital and relevant today as when they first formed over 40 years ago. I had the pleasure of chatting with Drew about the rise, fall, and return of Strange Advance, and I invite you to listen in on that conversation now. Welcome to The Blanket Fort, Drew Arnott.
before we talk about your most recent activities, let's take a trip back to the beginning. Do you remember the exact moment when you decided that you wanted to be a musician? Oh, that's a good question. Um, here's a little anecdote. When I was five or six years old, uh, we were, I, was, I was born in Scotland, came out when I was three. My mom got really homesick and, and wanted to go back. So we went back on holiday and, uh, and I stayed in a place called Tarbert in, uh, on the island of uh, Harris in Scotland, uh, off the coast in the Hebrides, and had a fabulous time, you know, being a little kid running around the hills and playing with the sheep and the cows and, you know, and, and everyone making a big fuss over me and all that kind of thing. So I had a great time. And when I got home, I was really homesick for Scotland. And um, I remember calling my mom into the room, into my bedroom, and to say, listen, I, I, I wrote a song. And um, and I pulled out a harmonica that I'd been given as a gift, and uh, <laughs> I did not know how to play the harmonica, so I was just humming through the harmonica. You know, that was like a, a five-year-old's version of playing it. And uh, and I had this. I'm playing this mournful, soulful kind of. I'm saying that. I have no idea if it, it, that's how it felt anyway. And um, so I mean, that was the first time that I have any memory of like music being. A, a major force in my life. Um, I grew up with, uh, you know, listening to my dad. He was a sax player. He was a professional uh, musician in Glasgow. And uh, and then when he moved out to Canada, you know, we played like weekend gigs and stuff like that. And um, and eventually, uh, you know, so I, I was I was inundated with music all the time. And uh, and obviously it sort of it took because. Um, the, the first musical instrument I ever played were the bagpipes. Well, well, I hated the bagpipes, but, you know, but it was like, you're going to learn the bagpipes and that's that. It's like, so finally, when it got time for me to join a pipe band, I pleaded with my dad. It's like, don't make me do this. I do not want to play the, the bagpipes. So we cut a deal and, uh, and, uh, and I, I went into drums instead. And, uh, and of course that was, uh, a way cooler thing to be doing. And, um, so I, I started, uh, you know, play as a matter of fact, I started off playing drums in a pipe band, but, uh, <clears throat> but, you know, you know, joined the school band and, and all that kind of thing. And, um, so drums were my instrument and, uh, and, and that was, uh, when I was like 15 years old, I started playing with my dad professionally. So, uh, and, and, you know, when you're a, a young teenager, you're dreaming of, you know, being in a band and playing in front of big crowds and all that kind of stuff. And that's the fantasy. And, uh, and one of the reasons that we're, we're doing this live thing is because I feel I kind of got robbed because when strange events were actually out there playing, which wasn't really a, a long period of time, I was just so stressed out at the time that I didn't realize, uh, you know, I'm actually achieving my childhood dream. You know, it's like I am in a band and we are playing in front of all these people. Isn't this amazing? But no, for me, it was just like, Oh God, you know, I got to get the, the sounds together for the next song. And, you know, and, and it's like, you know, Oh, this, this song is dragging, you know, let's pick up the tempo. And I just wasn't really in the moment. And uh, so I, I thought, yeah, I'd like to do it again and actually, you know, be able to look around and enjoy the experience. She can take- 
what drew you to the electronic side of music? Well, let me tell you. Um, first of all, there I am, a drummer, and I and uh, my parents bought me a guitar, uh, a twelve-string, which is not a good guitar to learn on, and especially not a guitar twelve-string with a bowed neck. So, like you know, when you the when you the further you went up the neck, the higher the strings were off the fretboard. And it was just brutal trying to, like, you know, forget about barring chords. It just wasn't really possible. So it was a very unpleasant instrument to play. So that's, uh, I remember walking to high school, you know, and having songs in my head and thinking, you know, how am I ever going to get these things out? You know, I, I can't play any melodic instrument or whatever. Well, when I was, uh, when I graduated from high school, by that point, I'd fallen in love with, uh, like, the English prog scene. So I, I just ate up the whole King Crimson, yes, Genesis, Straubs, that all that kind of stuff. And, um, and one instrument in, in particular appealed to me, the Mellotron. I loved the sound of the Mellotron. And so after I graduated from high school, I borrowed a couple of grand from my dad. Very nice man, by the way. And, um, and flew to London and, uh, because you couldn't get a Mellotron in Canada at the time. And uh, I arrived in London, went to my hotel, and then went to check out music stores. And the first music store I walked in, it's like, there it is, a Mellotron in all its glory. And uh, the guy said, sure, here's some headphones, you know, knock yourself out. And, and I pressed down a key and it's like, oh, my God, there's the sound. You know, I, now I can, I can sound like Yes or King Crimson or whoever. And... Uh, and so that was like my first melodic instrument, a Mellotron, which only had 35 notes and, you know, played back tapes and, you know, pretty archaic kind of a technology and stuff. But but it was magic. You know, I just loved it. So uh, that was my first, uh, uh, you know, keyboard. My next keyboard was uh, a synthesizer. Uh, uh, there was a, a, another English company called EMS. It was like a, a synthesizer of, like a like a modular synthesizer in a briefcase it was the weirdest setup but uh, and it it was only uh, it was actually dual phonic and it, you could play two notes at once but um but i would sit for hours hours and hours it just fascinated me no end i could spend you know so much time just and writing down all the settings for every cool sound that i came up with you know at least things that i thought were cool so that was my first synthesizer, and uh, you know, I've never looked back. There's no time to think of taking chances. We'll take them. The world's gonna die from something these are modern days, after all. If you want to taste a passion break, I'll show you love. Were you writing songs before you met up with uh, Daryl Crum and Paul Iverson? No, no. As a matter of fact, uh, Daryl and I played in a cover band and uh, Slan, and we played all the you know the British imports you know kind of thing and uh, music that practically nobody was aware of here. And so uh, you know we were not really a very successful band. We got fired from a number of places, but because we were playing like you know 
watcher of the skies, you know, Genesis or, you know, just weird ass non club material kind of songs, you know, but, um, but anyway, uh, we played in a band and Daryl and I, here's the secret to our success. We have a love hate relationship with each other. Um, we're very close. You know, I talk to him basically every day. Um, but things happen and, uh, you know, you know, creative egos clash or whatever. And, uh, and then it's like, Oh, I can't stand you. Get out of my sight. And, um, so when, when we were doing the cover band, he, he got upset with me and it's like, Oh, that's it. I'm out of the band. And it's like, Oh yeah, well, I'll show you. I don't need you. I can write songs. And, uh, and that's what actually spurred me on to, you know, actually start writing legitimate songs. And then of course, years later, a couple of years later, we got back together and, uh, and started writing material that would eventually end up on uh, Strange Advance. writing the music and and had this musical vision was it always since and electronics or did you just gravitate towards that direction i'm not a keyboard player i'm not like a studied you know pianist or anything like that i'm just like you know whatever sounds good to me you know that's that's enough i have just a smattering of theory and um so synthesizers and and uh, and all the, the the various you know keyboards that we used were easier to manipulate and uh and sound good on you know it's like uh it's the equivalent of you know i mean you consider what it what it's like for for people that start to you know learn the violin well they sound atrocious off the top you know it takes them you know a long time before it's like oh yeah it's what a lovely melodious sound you have so what whereas synthesizers and stuff it's like hey if you could come up with the sounds then you know instantly they sound great so um so, you know, and, and as I said, we loved all the, you know, practically all music that came out of the UK. So, you know, that's, they were getting into synths and stuff. And, you know, I mean, you know, we loved Roxy music. And then, of course, Eno, and, and he was going off in that kind of a direction. And and uh, so everyone, you know, that's, it was a natural place for, for us to end up. Now, since technology was advancing quicker than, you know, venue sound systems and, and venue equipment, did you get to play out live a lot before signing the record deal? We did not play a single date. We did not. We were two songwriters. You know, that, that was the, the essence of the band, uh, the so-called band. It was just, you know, we two songwriters. And when we signed the record deal, it was just... Uh, um, it was Daryl and I and Paul and, and Daryl had been playing in a band, a game playing covers and also toured with, uh, uh, Brian Adams. So they would do a set of covers. This is when Brian was, you know, just starting off and, uh, and then they would do a set as Brian's house band. And, um, so we, we ultimately, you know, kept Paul from the band and, and, uh, and formed strange advance. There was no live presence whatsoever. You know, as I say, you know, we were a studio 
organization. You know, we just uh, composed in the studio and, and came up with these tracks. And, and for a number of years, we're trying to get a record deal. And uh, but, yeah, we didn't think that we would be able to pull off what we were doing, you know, uh, on record. Uh, we I, we wouldn't be able to handle that live. And, and of course, there, we didn't have the musicians around us to even really attempt it. So no, we 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 released the first album, and we were planning to to tour. So we put a band together, and uh, Daryl's dad passed away in the middle of rehearsals, and we pulled the plug on that and just went to work on our second record. So we had two albums out before we'd ever played a gig. From the time you laid down your first demo to the time that you signed your record deal, how long was that frame of time? Well, Daryl and I uh, were were writing and doing demos, I would guess maybe for about four or five years before getting a deal. And uh, I did a couple of trips to L.A., you know, sitting down with the A&R directors and stuff and trying to convince them, you know, we had something going on. And, um, you know, and there were little, little bites, little, a little bit of interest from them, but uh, nothing that, you know, ended up uh, in a deal. And, um, but then finally, um, there's a couple of versions of this story that I don't even know what's the truth anymore. Um, we we ended up uh, you know getting interest from Capitol Records. Well, because we were based in Canada, um, the weird thing is Canada didn't have an A and R guy, except for the A and R guy that was in Canada. Uh, that sounds weird, but but he actually worked for uh, Capitol Records Los Angeles, but it was based in in Toronto, and you know it was from Toronto. But anyway, he 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 operated under the auspices of you know Capitol L A. So, uh, so we signed to, to the States, um, and he was our A&R guy. And he says that, uh, uh, you know, cause what happened was we, um, through Brian Adams again, uh, Brian heard, uh, Daryl played him on one of our demo tapes that he really liked. And he passed it on to Bruce Fairburn, uh, who was, a our local sort of big, big time uh, producer in Vancouver. And then Bruce liked it and then and played it for, for Dean, Dean Cameron, uh, who was the this A&R guy for Capital. And Dean says, I already know this, these guys. You know, I've uh, I had a tape from them, you know, like a couple of years ago. But he'd lost or, or the, the our contact information, you know, got separated from the cassette probably at the time. And um, and so he didn't know how to contact us. So it was, you know, pretty fortuitous that, you know, Bruce Fairburn showed up. It's like, and, and Dean had already fallen in love with the material. So he was like, okay, you know, we're signing you. And, um, but yeah, it, it took about five years for that uh, to come to come about. 
Well, landing a record deal with a major label seems to be the dream of most musicians. How did it feel when it finally happened, and how long before panic set in when you realized that you had to deliver an album? Well, how did it feel? It felt unreal, is what it felt. I mean, Daryl and I, for a long period of time, were just walking around, looking over our shoulders, ready for somebody to come and tap us. It's like, oh, sorry, we made a mistake. You know, no, 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 we didn't mean to sign. It was another band called Strange Advance. You know what I mean? We were the imposter syndrome. You know, you just didn't feel like you deserved it. Um, and so it was a weird, weird thing. But we had built up, uh, you know, a library of materials. So, you know, we weren't really concerned about, and we were already studio cats, you know, because we'd done all the recording ourselves. Uh, I actually, at this point, had a, you know, professional recording studio, uh, a commercial recording studio, you know, running. So the studio wasn't anything to be afraid of. And, uh, and we just enjoyed the process, you know, and for me, especially, I, I love the studio. It's my favorite place to be, you know, so it, it wasn't an unpleasant uh, thing to go through. And we weren't too concerned about the record and we had like more material than we needed. And so that was fine. The next record, that was another story. <laughs> Worlds Away was released in 1982. While every artist wants their records to be successful, were you surprised at just how successful the album was in Canada? Well, yeah, you, you have to remember, though, that we were signed to the States. And so we were, we were, you know, I mean, it's great to be successful in Canada, but, wow, it's even better to be successful in the States. So, uh, you know, I was getting updates on, uh, you know, radio stations, you know, playing the, the songs and things in the States. And, and uh, you know, for a, a short period of time, it looked, you know, you know, very good for us down there. Um, and, and we got, you know, well promoted. Um, you know, the, the Americans really pushed the record. And, and of course, you know, the Canadians did as well. Um, so it was... Uh, it was awesome, you know, like Worlds Away, for instance, the actual song is seven minutes long and um, it was never intended as a single. And uh, but DJs started playing it in Canada. Um, I know that we had a couple of pockets of success in the States, but uh, but it was, you know, it was the Canadians that really got behind us. So DJs would start playing the song and uh, and the record companies going, oh, that's great. We have to do a radio edit. You know, we'll we'll snip it down in half or whatever. But uh, radio wouldn't play the edited version. They just continued playing the album version. So, you know, this behemoth seven-minute track was being played uh, on, you know, AM radio. It was crazy. Did that song evolve out of different musical ideas or did the writing and construction of it all come together at once? Oh, it definitely built. It evolved over, you know, maybe six months or something. 
As a matter of fact, only part of it was written when we started recording it. I know that sounds weird, but uh, I had an idea and this sort of theme that I called, I called it the theme. And, um, and it was part of the song and I played it for Bruce and he's going, Oh yeah, yeah, we got to do this. So, um, I remember, you know, working on it at home. I had a little studio at home and, and putting the pieces together and then going and and re-recording stuff in the studio. And then eventually we broke for Christmas and I still hadn't written, um, any lyrics for it and probably only half the melody. So, so the plan was to go home for Christmas, you know, and start again in January and uh, finish off the song. And, and I remember Bob Rock saying, oh, I can't wait to hear what this song actually sounds like, you know, because everyone, everyone enjoyed, you know, what was going on uh, with the instrumental part of it. But uh, they didn't know, you know, what the melody would be like or, or lyrically what it would be like. So, yeah, that was uh, built up over time. Yeah. Crazy. What are your thoughts on the Worlds Away album today? Are there any particular songs that stand out that may have been overlooked? You know, both both Daryl and I have fallen in love with Automatic Size, uh, and obviously we liked it. We liked it at the time, but uh, but it's sort of a song you just kind of got ignored, and uh, and now we've both come to really really like it. So I'm really looking forward to playing that live. Strange Advance was referred to as a quote-unquote synth-bop band. Although there were definitely signs that you were a rock band that used electronics. Now, how did you see yourself in the grand scheme of things? Well, again, you know, we sort of felt like we were a little bit on the outside of the scene, you know, because it was a time when, you know, New Wave was erupting and, and, uh, and all these you know, really interesting, cool bands from, from Britain were coming out, but we weren't really, we weren't really part of that. We were a little older and, um, and we grew up, you know, our musical taste being formed in the seventies. So, you know, and that was like the whole glam scene in, in, uh, in the UK. And, and as I say, the, you know, prog rock thing and all that kind of thing. So um, that's where our roots were. And so, you know, sure, we loved synths and and uh, and and we and we got into drum machines and sequences and stuff and uh, and and but you know that was more coming from you know like Kraftwerk or somebody like that than it was from you know New Order or, you know or anyone. So yeah, um, for us it was just like we're just as I said, you know, we're songwriters. We just want to get our music out there, and uh, and we weren't part of any kind of you know major movement. Um, so we kind of felt like, you know, uh, a little bit like, you know, fakers. It's like, you know, cause we would be called, we would be lumped into, you know, the new wave movement, but really that wasn't really where we, you know, started off.
Iverson had left the band by the time you started work on the second album. And this time around, you produced the album. Now, did you learn a lot from Bruce during the production of the first album? Well, there was certainly a lot to learn. And, um, and Bruce was a, a very good, you know, uh, example to follow. Bruce was not like a real musical kind of producer. He was more like a, uh, like a logistics kind of guy. It's like, we're going to make this happen. And also he could smooth over any upset feelings. And, and, you know, when you look at all the other bands that he worked with, you know, like, uh, you know, Aerosmith or, or, you know, bands that had like, you know, raging egos, uh, you know, Bon Jovi and stuff, you know, you have to, to learn how to keep things under control and, and, you know, create an environment where people can work together easily. And, uh, so I learned, you know, a lot of that kind of thing from them. And, uh, and, and, and that was very helpful. But, um, but then when we started the second record, it wasn't my intention to produce. We started, you know, with a list of people that we were, you know, interested in talking to about producing the next album. And as a matter of fact, you know, I have very few regrets in life, but here's one. Um, Bob Rock is of course a big producer slash engineer. And, um, and he engineered our first album. And, and he also had a, a group, uh, the Paolas, and, uh, and they were really great. And they were using Mick Ronson to produce them and asked me if I would come in the studio and help them out with some parts. So I got to go in and meet Mick and, you know, duly impressed, you know, because we were big Bowie fans. And, and, he, and I asked him if he'd be interested in maybe doing some arrangements for some songs for us for our next album. And he said, oh, sure, you know, no problem. Here's my contact info. And so I tucked that away. And then when it came time for us to look for a producer for our next album, for some reason, between the two of us, we never thought of Mick Ronson, you know, which would have been fantastic because, you know, he's a very, very talented guy. And so, you know, that's something I've kicked myself over, you know, all these years. It's like, I don't know what happened. But um, but anyway, uh, we ended up um, uh, choosing Michael Kamen. Uh, to produce us because we were, you know, also Pink Floyd fans and, and he had just started producing uh, with them. He'd been with them as their musical director for a few years. And, and also uh, we went to see a movie, uh, the dead zone. He did the score for that. And I, I really liked the score. So uh, we reached out and, uh, and got in touch with him. And the next thing, you know, we're in, in London at uh, Britannia row, which was Pink Floyd's personal studio. And uh, we're recording with Michael Kamen and Andy Jackson, who was their engineer. And we're recording and uh, having a great time. Unfortunately, there was a, a minor problem in that Michael needed to wrap the album up. And so all of a sudden we're in mix mode. It's like, whoa, you know, we haven't finished half the parts. It's like, what about this? What about that? You know, we were the following week we were due to you know go down to david gilmore's yacht and, and uh, get some guitar recorded on a couple of tracks uh you know so which we were pretty excited about um but you know michael needed and i came to realize this later that he needed the balance of his payment of his producer's fee in order to pay the rent keep living and, and keep in mind uh when I say pay the rent, he was renting Jimmy Page's house in London, and which was like a huge rent. I, I, I remember him telling me, I can't remember, it was like 12,000 pounds or something. And so, yeah, he was really desperate for the cash. So 
we had to pull the plug on the sessions. And, uh, and, and again, my hero, Dean Cameron, says, hey, Drew, why do, why do you produce? It's like, sure, okay. Uh, but it was like diving in the deep end, you know. So sure, I picked up a, a number of things in the studio from Bruce and from Michael, but I, I didn't have any experience apart from that. So I, it was just sink or swim time, you know. I watched the dancers through the windows of my eyes. featured musical assistance from Andy Newmark, Earl Slick, uh, Andy Bound from uh, Status Quo, and many others. We kept, you know, certain tracks from the the, the London recordings, and uh, and that's where you know Earl Slick and and uh, Andy Newmark and stuff show up. As a matter of fact, uh, when Andy Newmark was uh, uh, in the studio with us, you know he, you know we took a day off, and he said, "Listen, I'm going to go around and." And, and record some parts for Brian Terry. And, um, and would we like to go along? It's like, sure. Okay. So, uh, you know, man, oh man, we were just, we were so young and naive. And, and, and so we were, you know, ushered into the studio and introduced, uh, you know, Rhett Davies, the producer and Brian Ferry, it was just those two. And, and they were so nice. And, and Daryl and I just sat in the back of the room like mice you know, we didn't want to say a word. We didn't want to like, we were just like so thrilled to be in the presence of greatness, you know? So uh, anyway, thank you, Andy, for that experience. We Run was obviously an album highlight and probably the most popular track on the album two that came out in 1985. Although Daryl handled most of the lead vocals, how did you end up tackling the vocal on that song? Well, when I, I, I'd written this song, and uh, I liked the song, and um, and it wasn't destined to be a single. Um, you know, so it wasn't uh, it wasn't like you know, oh, I, I'm going to sing the big song on the record. Uh, it was just like a minor song, and and I I told Daryl I'd, I'd like to sing. He's like, yeah, sure, whatever. And so it wasn't really uh, until Scott Litt got his hands on the on the record, uh, he did the mix and uh, basically rearranged the track. When we got it back, I hated it. It sounded good, but uh, the arrangement, uh, it was just so foreign to me, you know, because it was a, a sort of a longer, more languid uh, progression of, a, you know, the song just sort of, it was uh, not what the, the single ended up being. Uh, but, you know, a few listens in and it's like, oh, okay, now I get it, you know, and, I have to say, yeah, you know, that's, that's a way better single than uh, than what we produced. But again, we weren't really planning on producing a single with it. So, but anyway, Scott Litt, um, who also produced and engineered for REM, um, at that time he he hadn't really done a lot of consequence, and and when Dean brought him in, uh, you know, Scott was like all about, you know, I'm going to show you what an awesome job I can do, and. And so he spent, uh, you know, when you're mixing a track, 
you know, normally you get it done in a day or a day and a bit, but he took three days to mix uh, We Run at the power station in New York. And he pulled out all the stops, you know, including, as I say, you know, doing this rearrangement, cutting the song together differently. And, uh, and it was, he was responsible for, you know, making it the, the radio hit that it ended up being. Album two was a success, or earning you another gold record. Was it a relief to know that the album was never going to be included on any sophomore slump lists? Well, yeah, that's uh, y- you know we had it was such a tumultuous um, process, you know, be- going to London, trying you know re- recording an album in a, in a strange environment with strange people. It's like, oh well, you know, it's still it's, this is cool, it's it's happening. And then, oops, it's not happening. Pull the plug. Let's start again. And we had really, we were just, our heads were spinning by the time we were done, uh, you know, because, you know, sure, I was a songwriter um, and a musician, but, you know, now I'm I'm pretending I'm a producer and, uh, you know, and it's a steep learning curve. And, and, and again, you know, that's where the, my insecurities led to the kitchen sink philosophy. And, uh, so by the time we were done, um, you know, we weren't really, it wasn't a, a concern of ours, you know, whether this is, a, you know, going to be a successful record or not, you know, we were with Capitol records and, you know, and they had like, a, you know, the machine behind them, you know, they were the machine. And so I wasn't really concerned about the success of the record. Um, I guess, you know, probably I should have been, but, uh, but it was just basically, I'm just so happy it's done. You know, I don't care what happens to it now. My job is finished. I can go home and relax. What was your songwriting process like at this time? And was it different than the way that you wrote the songs on Worlds Away? And uh, has it even changed over time? Yeah, another good question. Um, well, yeah, I'm just thinking about it. Um, I don't think it really has changed over time. And, and I put that down to the, the blessing and the curse uh, that is my lack of musicianship. You know, like, you know, like I can fool anybody into thinking I'm a guitarist or a keyboard player, you know, for about 35 seconds. Um, but, you know, you, you would soon find out that my, you know, musical knowledge is pretty limited. So my my kind of thing is like putting uh, simple ideas together um, to form more complex, 
you know, sort of creatures. And, um, and, and it's just recognizing when, when it sounds and feels good to me. Um, and, uh, and sometimes it's, sometimes it's like walking around and I have this weird thing where I always have music in my head. Um, well, not now when I'm talking, but if I'm not talking, there's a tune going on in my head, whether it's something that I've just written or, or it's, uh, an old song that I'm remembering. Uh, lots of times I have no clue, you know, it's like, where did this melody come from? You know, I have no, I, it's like, did I invent that? Or, or did, was I walking by a, you know, a, a car radio or something and I picked up a little bit of a tune and so, you know, I've got to like try to analyze it and figure it out. And, and, uh, but yeah, lots of times just melodies just occur spontaneously for me. And, and this is going to make me sound very strange, but, uh, I have a fan in my, uh, not a person, a, a little fan that, uh, uh, in my bedroom that, uh, blows in a very strange way. It's sort of like it, it, it kind of hums a little bit, you know, and, and I'll lay in bed at night and, and I can consciously change the pitch of the sound of the hum in my head, my interpretation of the sound of that hum, I can actually write little melodies out of it. I know that's a very, very weird concept, but, uh, so yeah, um, it, it, so either things, uh, those ideas come to me spontaneously, or I sit down and uh, and you know maybe I've got a new keyboard or or a new uh, you know software synth or something, and I'm going through so, through different patches and sounds, and and that triggers a thought or an idea. It's like, and then I'm off on a little tangent. And uh, but I, I'm one of those guys that uh, just feel that somehow I'm open to the universe. You know, I, I'm. I'm a willing receptor and ideas come to me. It's not like, you know, building a house or something, you know, you lay a good foundation and, you know, bring in good carpenters and whatever. Um, it's more like, you know, Hey, there are ideas out there and, and my brain is just somehow, you know, able to receive a few good ones and, and work with them and, and, uh, and piece it together. And that's how I end up, you know, writing songs. Someone in America must have liked the two album because Red Rockers did a cover of Just Like You on their album Schizophrenic Circus, and it was even released as a single to radio. What did you think of their version? Oh, I thought it was great. Um, you know, a much higher energy. As a matter of fact, uh, because of them, I've revamped Just Like You, not not using their direction, but but you know, being sort of inspired by the you know the the feeling of it uh, i've uh, i've done a new version of just like you that we're going to be debuting live and see how people like it but um now i thought it was a it was, it was a really good version and uh, and it might have been released uh, as a single at some point but initially our manager at the time um he was responsible because their producer was in his office in la and i guess maybe arthur uh, played this guy you know, a couple of tracks and, and he really liked just like you. And he said, I'm working with this band and this would be perfect for them. And so they went and recorded it. 
But Arthur uh, forbid them uh, to release it as the first single for reasons known only to him. And uh, so, you know, the, the uh, late, years later, I, I had a chat with uh, a guy I knew who I didn't realize at the time was actually the Red Rockers manager. And he, and he said, you wrote that song, you bastard, you know, you know, you really messed us up. I'm just like, hey, it wasn't me. <laughs> I would have been happy for them to to release, you know, the the songs. It was the first song on the album, and it was going to be the first single. And he said, "Oh yeah, you know, it, it was a shitstorm at the record company when they found out that they weren't going to able to release it as the as the first single." Uh, I guess Arthur thought that perhaps we would have released it as a single, you know. And and I remember him saying, "Well, you know, that, that could be our third or our fourth single." It's like third or fourth single. Most bands don't get to release four songs from an album you know you're lucky if you get to release two songs unless you're you know michael jackson you just wrote thriller but uh but all the rest of us mere mortals are, are lucky just to get one or two songs out you know and promoted so uh anyway it was a, a pretty crazy scenario but i i really did enjoy their version <laughs> Three years later, you released the album The Distance Between, and the band continued to move forward musically, and the album relied less on electronics and was more guitar-based. Was that a conscious decision? Um, not so much. It was just, it was the people that we were involved with at the time. Um, you know, that record was pretty much all done in, in Toronto, and um and initially, we we got together with like uh, Howard A, the bass player, and uh, and Joe Primo, a great uh, recording engineer who lives in California and works for Gino Vanelli. But um, anyway, they were going to you know uh, co-produce the record with us, and uh, or with me. And so it was like we were able to use their connections with the, the local scene and and bring in different players and that. And uh, so it was. It was just a combination of events, really. Uh, but till the stars fall, uh, I, I think there's like a, still a, a good chunk of keyboard activity going on. Well, the album seemed like it was, I guess the best way to describe it would be less introverted than the first two albums. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm just looking at This Island Earth, which my dad played sax on, by the way. Um, yeah. and. Um, you know, and that's a that's a very touching song. Uh, I was talking to Daryl about it the other day, and uh, the long ships are are waiting, and and uh, you know, sort of which conjures up a Viking kind of like scenario. But he says, no, no, those those are spaceships. <laughs> they were just really long spaceships. It's like, oh, I didn't, I did not pick that up. <laughs> I didn't realize that's what was going on there. <laughs> Yeah. 
out of the 11 songs, in my opinion, the album features at least seven tracks that could have been hit singles. Yet you only chose Till the Stars Fall and Love Becomes Electric. What are your thoughts on the album as a whole today? Well, you know, there's definitely some standout tracks on it. And of course, um, it's got, you know, my one favorite standout musician on it, uh, Alan Holdsworth, uh, who played on a couple of the tracks. And that was, you know, really meaningful to me. You know, I was a huge fan of his work and to hear him, you know, playing on things that I was involved with, that uh, was awesome. Just wonderful. So, uh, so I think, yeah, I think the writing is strong. I think, uh, there are a lot of good strong songs on that record. Uh, yeah, we had a lot of material to, to pull on. And, and of course, love becomes electric was a, was a great, uh, a great track and uh, awesome bass playing. And you should check it out for that alone. Well, each album features one epic length track. Of course, we already talked about Worlds Away. You already mentioned Home of the Brave off of Two and then Alien Time off of this album. Did you find it invigorating to be able to sort of stretch your musical muscles and write these emotionally powerful tracks? Well, you know something, I don't know if it's a case of stretching muscles or just not having the ability to, you know, <clears throat> condense and, and maybe it's just because I was too late to try to figure out, you know, how to wind something up. It's like, Oh, I'll just keep going and <laughs> we'll figure something out eventually. But uh, no, I, 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 I'm serious. There, there is a certain amount of laziness involved, uh, you know, because you want to be, you know, you want music to, to be concise and, and, you know, just, just give me the, you know, the meat of it. And it takes a certain discipline that maybe I don't have. I can listen to, a, you know, a song, you know, it could be 15 minutes long. If if I'm into the groove or into the vibe of it, it's like, uh, I don't want it to end, you know. And uh, and so, you know, I just kind of get greedy and, and let it go on and on and on. And it uh, doesn't bother me. So uh, So I guess some of that philosophy kind of leaked into that song. We weren't spending too much time editing things down. You know, we were just giving them more air, let them have more life. After the distance between, did the band officially split or just go on a, a never-ending hiatus? Well, I guess it depends on who you talk to. You know something? Initially, Daryl didn't want to carry on doing Strange Advance. You know, the, the touring thing was not for him. And and he was sort of moving off in a more of a dance direction. You know, and, and I was, my heart was still with the, you know, whatever the, the, the roots of, of Strange Advance were. Uh, you know, I hadn't, you know, strayed too far from that. So I wanted to carry on and, uh, and I did, uh, you know, I kept uh, recording and, and with the intention of <clears throat> doing another strange advanced album. But uh, at the same time, I was married to a wonderful woman who, you know, a great singer and very talented performer, but bipolar, you know, as a result, you know, lots of ups and lots of downs. And it kind of uh, interrupted the flow. You know, it was like, you know, I've, I've got to take care of real life here. You know, I, 
this band thing is all very well, but you know, when someone is deeply in trouble, you know, you've got to be there for them. You've got to, you know, do whatever you can. So that kind of stopped the strange advance thing. I mean, I was always, you know, writing ideas. I've always got ideas. So I'm always jotting them down and, and, you know, working on occasional things. So we ended up moving back to Vancouver and I kind of focused more on her career. And then, um, you know, I got involved with local artists, you know, doing a little production work here or there. But, you know, I'd sort of drifted away from the, the whole, you know, make a record, you know, tour the record, make a record, tour the record thing, even though we didn't do enormous amounts of either. But I got my taste of that life. And, uh, and it wasn't like, oh, I've, I've got to do this. This is so much fun. Like, uh, you know, uh, my heart belongs in the studio, writing songs, putting pieces together, you know, making myself happy, essentially, in the studio. And you can do that without an audience. So I didn't really need to have the songs out there. Um, I didn't need to be out there playing in front of people. I was quite satisfied just creating the works and, you know, enjoying that that part of the process. And, and that satisfied me. So as a, as a result, Strange Advance just sort of, you know, sat there, not not really doing much of anything. And, you know, occasionally things would happen. Uh, they'd do a re-release of something or it would get get added to a compilation or, or, or used in a, you know, a TV show or a movie or whatever. But um, really, until Daryl and I started talking about doing the live thing again, that kind of reignited the whole strange events brand, so to speak. And um, so, you know, there we are, uh, you know, talking about touring and, and strange events suddenly has a, a second life. In 1995, you released Worlds Away and Back, which had hits, a couple new tracks, and some previously unreleased recordings. Are there more unreleased tracks in the vault? And if so, will they ever be released? Well, I've run across a lot of stuff that I'd totally forgotten. And that blows me away that, you know, you're kidding. You could spend weeks or months on a track or something and then forget all about it. But apparently it's true because uh, I've I've come across songs that you know have totally been you know lost at the wayside. So yeah, there there is more material for sure. And uh, will they ever be? Re- you know something um, Universal wanted to do yet another compilation, and you know we've already done two compilations, and it's like why you know. And I just thought, oh, look, if you wanted to do like a box set or something of, of everything, then I could get behind that. But just to do another compilation, you know, with another couple of bonus tracks or unreleased tracks or whatever, I wasn't really interested in that. So if they ever decide to do something like that, I would be on board and uh, that might happen. But otherwise, uh, Unless they're, you know, my just out of my personal collection, then sure, I'll I'll probably throw some stuff out there from time to time. Bullseye Records reissued the distance between, uh, so that can be had on CD now with, uh, I believe, two bonus tracks, and the two album uh, exists out there on CD as well. Yet 
worlds away, I've never seen a legitimate issued copy of that album. Why is that? Well, for one thing, it was just at the very, very beginning of, you know, CDs being released. Um, and it was at a time when not all records went out on CD. So, so by the time uh, we were ready to put the second album out, then for sure, you know, you know, at that, that point, that's the, you know, the standard now is to release on CD. So worlds away missed that tiny little opening. And, um, and I guess, you know, we were focused on the future and, and new material and, uh, and, you know, even at that point in time, you know, compilations and, 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 and mix CDs or whatever, they weren't really a big thing. So, so I, I guess it just sort of missed the boat timing wise. And now it's like, is it worthwhile, you know, releasing? I mean, CD sales are, have plummeted. Is there any point in it when all the material is available to anyone that wants it? I don't know. Let's talk about the return of Strange Advance to the live scene. You know, you've mentioned Daryl, but at the same time, I've read that Daryl's not involved. No, Daryl was Daryl was very excited about the prospect, and he still is. But he's thinking that you know, all right, well maybe maybe in a year's time I could do it, and that remains to be seen. But he's totally behind the whole thing, uh, you know. And and he told me it's like Drew, you know, we got to get strange events back on the road and and basically he left it to me to initiate it and get things running and with the assumption that you know he would jump on board but he just doesn't feel that he can do it this year but we've got to get the machine up and running because uh there's a lot involved so yeah i found a singer it took a long long time and i was starting to get a bit desperate but i finally found a singer who turns out to be somebody i know somebody that i like i never gave him a thought but anyway he's a big lover of daryl's vocals and and he has sort of a natural ability to mimic the songs of course sound like strange advance and, and i i i just want to have like you know 30 40 percent of daryl you know they're captured in, in one way or another in the vocal because i i don't want you know a radically different sounding voice you know, to present these songs and, and I'll sing a couple of our songs just to give it more of that strange advanced vibe. But yeah, I'm really happy with the way it's, the way things are sounding. Uh, I think people are going to be quite pleasantly surprised. Well, what is the best way for listeners to connect with the band and receive updates on all future activities? The website, I would say the website, strangeadvance.com. And, uh, you know, we have a couple of Facebook pages, uh, a fan page and a, an official page and, and, and for sure, and, uh, and Instagram and all that stuff. So it, it won't be too difficult for people to, to find out what we're doing.
that's it for this episode of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. I'd like to thank my special guest, Drew Arnott of Strange Advance for stopping by the Blanket Fort and chatting about the history of the band. I'd also like to thank Jamie Vernon of Bullseye Records. Remember that you can purchase Strange Advance, The Distance Between with two bonus tracks on Bullseye Records from Canada. And thank you for listening. Smell you later. Later.